Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. I did three weddings. It was a time of great joy for me, and it actually worked out nicely because I sort of helped them all choose the same passage. So I was able to have basically one sermon that got repurposed. Man, you can be sure I went through and checked for every name in those messages, especially second and third, made sure that I wasn't wrong. Yeah, yeah, say the wrong name, I'm telling you. But the passage that I preached, the passage that they chose, is the one that was read today during uh, the singing time. It was 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 8. And the more I read it, because I had worked on it so long and I had done so many messages on it, it really drove deep into my heart. God really used it. And this this text is really the impetus for this entire love series, okay? And what the... The thing that happened in my heart was I was reading it one day and remembering that Paul is teaching the Corinthians how to love like God. And then it struck me that God loves me like this passage is written. So we're going to look later on at the end of this message. We're going to read this passage. We're going to try to really apply what Paul is telling the Corinthians to our own lives and our own understanding of what, how God loves each and every one of us. Part of, the, you know, part of the joy for me for doing weddings is the premarital counseling. I'm not going to lie. Like when we really get to dig deep and we get to ask really, really important questions, questions that are foundational to our lives together. And so I often ask the question, I'm so, you know, so grateful. Congratulations on your coming wedding. Why do you want to be married? Seems like a very obvious first question to ask. And you can imagine what the responses are. I often hear, we get along so well. It's good. That's not always going to happen, but okay. <laughs> He's my best friend. Again, refer to this answer number one. That's not always going to be the case. He's nice to me. That's an interesting one, as if that is something over and above what is supposed to happen in any relationship. I had a guy say one time, I mean, look at her. She's hot. They're doing good. They're still together, so that's good. Sadly, I assure you, that will not always be the case. Neither will he, okay? We will look different. But probably the most common one is he makes me happy. He makes me happy. Which on its face sounds like a beautiful sentiment, and it really is in many ways. But in the end, what we're going to see is that sediment is really rooted in a sense of self and what I can achieve out of being in relation with somebody else. Every once in a while, we hear this, she is my true love. Well, today we're going to talk about what does that really mean 
What does it mean to have true love? You know, we all want significance and security in our lives. We want our lives to matter, and we want to know that we are loved beyond condition, that we are always going to be understood, accepted, and safe. Well, we know that no one can do that for us except God. We don't want a superficial love. We want complete knowledge without judgment and true acceptance. But true love, if you're honest, is elusive in this world because we are pulled back and forth by competing motivations in our heart and in what the culture teaches us. Some in the world we live in today are arguing that love basically equates to agreement. Love equates to acceptance. Or love equates to affirmation. And that applies to every area of sin. This is not just one little pet area. This is everything. So we need to constantly be refocusing our vision again and again on what God's love is and how that should look in our lives so that we can begin, maybe for the first time, truly loving people the way God would have us love them. For we can only truly love them when we love like God. So turn with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. If you have your Bible, A+. If you don't, A+. You can look up here. Bring your Bible next week. This is how it starts. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. The bottom line when we read these first verses is that true love is selfless. Let's take a look at these words. Let's work through these words, what Paul is saying, and, and help us try to get understanding of exactly what he means here. So the first word is patient, macrothume. This is the word that we talked about last week in forgiveness. This patience under duress, where people are provoking us. It's not just I'm going to bear up under the load of life or this difficult time or this circumstance. This is someone's being a jerk, and you're not lashing out. You're withholding what you really want to say, likely, if you're anything like me, to show them the love of Christ. Kind, loving, and benevolent. Not causing discomfort. You're not being abrasive. Or boasting, focusing on yourself, self-aggrandizement. Saying something like, look how much I love these people. It's amazing my ability to put a little thing in my sentence that somehow justifies my behavior. A look-at-me statement. And it's so subtle because our hearts are deceitful. Arrogant, thinking that one is better than others. Insistent, trying to fix, manage, and control a situation. Being manipulative or being unagreeable. Irritable. Some translations say easily provoked. Resentful. Some translations say keeping a record of wrongs. This is something of an accounting term. Now, those of you who've been married know this. <laughs> we tend to remember things that happened years ago as evidence for something that is happening in the present. Love does not do that. Each of these are oriented in that last analysis away from self and toward the person, the object, the heart upon which we are setting our love. Now, of course, we can only do this when we're rooted in humility. This has to be a posture in our heart to where everything that we do, we live and move and have our being with the other person's good in mind. Now, you know if we do this on our own, this is impossible. 
Because on the one hand, we either fail, or on the other hand, we do so out of some toxic, sick love, where we become codependent, where we become so reliant on the other person to give us meaning that we end up loving desperately in order to keep this sense of fulfillment and okayness in our life. You know, the worldly view of love is quite skewed. Watch TV, go on the internet, check out social media. You will see that the world's idea of love is off, and we carry the message too. That's the sad piece. Part of who we are as sinners and our sin nature is that we are constantly in this battle between truth and error, truth and lie. We constantly have to refocus our minds again and again. Otherwise, we begin to love like the world, which ultimately says love is about me, how I feel, how I might be fulfilled in whatever endeavor escapade with another person that I choose. Hence the phrase, they make me happy. Focused on something other than a sacrificial posture of willing the best for the other person will automatically bring us into the realm of worldly love. Perhaps one of the biggest errors that we fall into here is when we love out of feeling. Now, we can thank, I don't know, probably the 18th century British romance writers or something that brought this sense of deep emotion to the way they interacted with the world, the way they understood love, and it translated into this, I don't know, Rapunzel let your hair down, knight in shining armor, this person is fulfilling me, then we get the Jerry Maguire view of love, you complete me. And we end up seeing love in a way that's wholly different than God would have us understand it. We begin to say, I don't like that person, so I've fallen out of love. For the young people who are here, who are not married, and maybe for some of you older ones who are, you do not have to like someone to love them. There are times I am sure that my wife does not like me. I am positive. It's not true the other way. but she still loves me. And it's obvious towards her priorities in her life, in the way she treats me, in the way she exemplifies chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. You do not have to feel like you love somebody to love them. In fact, when you do, you're already off track. You're already off track. Worldly love is rooted in romance. Fulfillment. Oh, we're going to conquer the world together. We're the perfect match. Self-actualization. That's not to say, of course, that these things are not important. If these come out of a covenant of marriage, if these come out of the promise to love somebody, then wonderful. But if they do not, and we're focusing on getting the ends as part of the means, we'll be off track. We will. When we see them as outcomes, instead of the benefit of true godly love, we get off track. Godly love is sourced differently. It is different. It is first and foremost found in God. You see, we can only really love the people around us the way God wants us to love if we are in love with him. 
The more we love God, the better we love others around us. We are made, after all, to be reflections of that God, to be reflections of our Father in heaven. As we love him and we receive his love, our love extends necessarily out to those around us. It's sourced in God. It's rooted in humility. We wake up each day and we say, I have been made to be loved by God and to love others. That means that impulse in my heart to do what I want. That motivation that says I can manipulate this situation to feel a certain way, to achieve a certain outcome, needs to be cast aside as we make the decision each moment, not my will, but thy will. Not my way, but God's way. Not about me, but about them. Frequently when I'm in premarital counseling, that's one of my common go-to phrases. I'm like, look, it's not about you anymore. You don't get to make a calculation based off of your own life. Your calculation now must encompass and in many ways be subsumed by what's better for them, your partner, your beloved. This works in friendships. This works in sibling relationships. This works at work when dealing with your bosses or your employees. When we're loving like God and we're looking to his heart, embracing his love and acting like it, it, it shades That's more than shades. It colors the way we love those around us. Part of the reason that many of us struggle, is a bold statement, I think it's true. Some of the reason that many of us struggle to love each other is because we do not love and receive the love of God well enough. Someone told me the other day, you know, said, I don't think a problem with evangelism in the church and telling people about Jesus is about fear. It's not about fear. It's not about not knowing what to say. It's a problem with their relationship with the Lord in the first place. If we are so enamored and so in love with Jesus and we so embrace what he has done for us, how could that not just come out? How could that? Paul said it. Paul, I can't not but preach. I must preach. He had this inner impulse by seeing God and who he was and embracing the love of God in his life, saving him, the chiefest of sinners he calls himself. Is he able to love others well in truth? And true love integrates feelings, thoughts, and actions in a way that always align them with the will of God. Thoughts, will, and actions were integrated when we're loving like God. That means our thoughts match our feelings. And our thoughts and feelings match our actions. That can get twisted up when we don't love like God. We can say something like, I don't really like this person, but I have this feeling toward them. Or everything looks good on paper. We should be married. We should be together. We should be friends. We should whatever. But we get these pieces, the sin drives in between our psyche and drives these pieces apart where we cannot think the way we feel, we cannot feel the way we act. But when we focus on God and set our will aside and focus on what God is, who God is, trusting his spirit for the power to do it, we begin to love like him. The sneaky thing about this I found in my own life, and the Bible testifies that the heart is deceitful above all measure. Who can know it? I mean, maybe if you're really honest with yourself, Haven't you ever been in these situations where 
you think you're doing something right. You think you're doing something with the right motivation, hoping for the correct outcome. But then something in you, the Spirit reveals to you, a Bible verse brings to your mind. Someone mentions something, and you find this little dark corner of ugly that you never know existed. We live our lives far too much in a manner of sweeping things into a corner instead of being honest. We need to have God constantly revealing our hearts to us, and we need to constantly see God in his truth again and again, placing them into juxtaposition. This is what I want. This is what I think. This is what I feel. And this is what God is saying and wrestling from moment to moment to align those two things. I mean, we're sinners, and the, one of the best words I can get, we're fickle. We're fickle. We like one thing one day, like another thing another day. We get carried along by the winds of our feelings. We're often pulled back and forth along a spectrum between selfishness and selflessness. I mean, that is the Christian life, is it not? This is what I've noticed in geometry, you know, in a three-dimensional space. I'm talking about this the other day. It's impossible to know your location with a single coordinate. It's even possible to know your location with a second coordinate. So if you're going between two points and trying to understand where you really are, you're never going to know because you only have two points. We live our Christian life like this. We say, I either need to be selfless or or selfish, and we're pulled back and forth. The answer to this is to get off of that roller coaster, get off of that path that we're trying to figure out exactly where we should be and look to a third point. That third point is Jesus. We get way too caught up in considering how we act or acting a certain way or trying to manipulate our behavior to align. Look at Jesus. When our eyes are focused there, when we're truly seeking to align our will with his and asking him to shine light in all those dark, ugly places, as soon as we find him, we begin to love in a manner that we never could on our own. We need to turn our eyes upon God. Part of the way we do that is to look at Scripture. You know, I, I think we do a drastic disservice for ourselves when we look at Scripture and our devotion is something that we do for 15 minutes in the morning, unless you're super holy and then it's like 30 minutes, okay? We should be in God's Word all the time. All the time. God's word should so be permeated in our minds and we're spending so much time there, we're constantly cleansing our mind of what our heart, what the world, and what others want us to do, think, and feel. Perhaps one of the best ways to love others, to know we're loving like God, is to allow Christ to be our everything. I think it's very easy to begin to love someone, to do service. We talk about the five love languages, right? And Gary Chapman talks about these. You know, the acts of service, the quality time, the words of affirmation, the physical touch, the gifts, right? We begin to use these as a means of earning our love from the people around us, the same way we do many of these things towards God. We begin to say nice things because I'm laying the groundwork for later, if you know what I mean. We begin to bring gifts to friends because we want them to know how gracious and giving and loving we are instead of doing it out of the right heart. And because our hearts can be deceitful, we can really get off track 
I say this with such confidence because I am convinced no matter how long you've walked with the Lord, no matter how many times you've been to church, both the morning and the evening service, there are areas of your heart that are not sold out to the Lord. And there are ways in which you are loving that do not align to God's will. We look at Christ as our model for loving behavior, and we depend on the Holy Spirit's work in our lives from moment to moment, listening for him to place guardrails on our life. There's this beautiful passage in Isaiah, it's chapter 30. It's talking about when the Spirit of God comes to the nation of Israel. It says, In your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. It's this idea of like you're walking along the path and by our nature, we sort of sidestep because things look great here. If we're listening, God will say, no, go left and bring us back to the center. Now we're loving for this reason. No, go back, go back. But we have to be listening for his voice. We have to be so humble and sold out to the Lord, so submitted to his will over ours that we can hear when he whispers to us. We ask the Spirit to reveal constantly our true motives to change us and to sustain us in love. Like I said, we must be willing to face the truth in our heart and submit again and again to God's truth. I believe this is what Paul is saying when he says we are to pray without ceasing to be in conscious contact with God, to be listening for his voice and ready at every moment to submit our own will to his. We have to want it. We have to ask for it. It has to be important for us. It was important for David after his great sin in Psalm 51. He said, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. He knew that only God could change him. Only God could bring about the thoughts, the actions, and the behaviors that would please God. Then he begs him, cast me not away from your presence. I do not want to know a time that you're not there. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. When we mean that prayer, when we pray that prayer, Lord, change my motives. Help me love this person well. Next week, we're going to talk about loving. I don't even know how to say it. Loving the unlovable might not be the right way. Loving people that just irritate us, whoever that is. That's the way I really want to say it. How do you love our enemies? It's when we're sold out to God and we're begging God to give us the spirit to do it, we will. That's the first point. Second point, true love upholds the truth. So true love is not only selfless, but true love is true. It upholds the truth. Verse 6, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The world measures love, like I said, in terms of acceptance and affirmation. Agreement. If you love me, you will agree with everything I do and every conception I have of myself, every choice that I make in my life, every thought that I have in my head, and every feeling that I express to you because I've said it is Mine, and therefore true. The dangerous part about this is that, yes, God loves you and made you. Let me say this. Let me go back and say this. This is another line we say, or we hear. You're perfect. 
God loves you exactly the way you are. It's a really dangerous sentiment. God loves you exactly the way you are because it's partly true. God, God does love you. And when you come to him and surrender and your sins are placed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are perfect in your eyes, in his eyes. But you see, we want to get to that place without any of this submission to the Lord, without ever looking to Christ. We just say, I want God to accept me the way I am. I want others to accept me exactly the way I am. Another phrase that we say, you know, God made you and God don't make no mistakes. Well, that's true, but what does that mean? That does not co-sign that your behavior then is therefore impeccable. It means that God created you and when he looks at you, he sees the person that he knows you could be. He sees the person that he created in truth before the sin of the garden ever infected the human race. The person that he wants you to be is who he sees. That's who he loves. And because he loves that person and sees that there's a long distance between here and there, out of his grace, he calls you out to bring you to that place. God loved me so much, he let me do what I wanted. And it wound me up in prison with a broken family and a drug addiction. That's how much God loved me because he saw who it was that he was creating. And he, if I asked everyone around me, just let me do my thing. I'm fine the way I am. This is the way God made me. Can you just let me do drugs and be fine? I would never be on the path to where God is making me go, where God is driving me. And I believe the same for you. We can assume our identity is dependent on who we are, what we think, what we want, what we feel. We insist that others would agree. Believing this eliminates the need for any change. Loving, sort of loving someone despite their sin is different than co-signing it, is different from agreeing with it. It's different from saying what you're doing is great, God bless you, I affirm you, do whatever makes you happy. Because this is the truth of the world, which for us really is a lie. It's the danger. And we take it sometimes. We begin to embrace that. It embraces comfortable lies over uncomfortable truths. The easier, softer way. I gotta be honest, there are times I wish in my ministry, I wish that, let me say it just flat out, there are times I wish God's will were different. There were times I wish the Bible did not say what it said. I'd say, oh, things would be so much easier. But they'd be wrong. They would be wrong. It eliminates the need for Jesus' death on behalf of sinners when we tell everyone that they're just perfect the way they are. It's that whole everybody gets a trophy mentality. Everybody gets a trophy. Godly love cannot and should not affirm that which is contrary to God's revealed will, either in ourselves or in others. I have friends, I'm sure you do too, who say things and they want us to say, that's a great idea. You should do that. I know I've been that guy. Hey man, I got this idea. Doesn't this sound great? No, that sounds stupid. Don't do that. 
As a believer, not a, this is like we don't suddenly figure it out. We can't see our own faces, remember? We think we go to church, we read the Bible, we walk with the Lord, that suddenly every decision we make is going to be above reproach. So I have someone that I call all the time and say, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about this? He goes, I think that's stupid. I say, Roger that. And then I don't do it. <laughs> because I can't see my own face. He can see me. He knows me. He will not affirm in me that which is contrary to God's will. Because in the end, it's not his place. He is not God. He does not have the authority to say, oh yeah, that's great, go do it. I know God said this, but let's override what God said and do what you want in place of it. When we accept and affirm those lies, we do become partakers of it. But we're called to speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ. It's interesting in this, in this verse, um, it's a very common construction, actually. It's not that unusual. But the in love, what does it mean to speak the truth in love? Well, in Greek grammar, this is called a dative of means. This is how we do the loving. Another way of doing it is to transcribe this word into an adverb. So for all of you grammarians out there, you know that is, it says how the verb is done. So another way of saying it might be speak the truth lovingly. Speak the truth lovingly. What does that look like? I mean, when we consider today's passage, if I'm disagreeing with somebody and a choice that they're making in their lives and they're asking me to love them, the way that I love them should mirror the way that this passage comes across even in the face of their choice to do something contrary to God's will. I think the biggest key to this in loving others in the way we say truth to them is that the attitude of our hearts is probably the preeminent aspect of doing this well. We need to tell them that their behavior, first and foremost, grieves God's heart. God's heart. We act sometimes like others' sin is a personal affront to us. Your behavior offends me. And it comes across in the way that we speak about their lives, in the way that we love them. We take others' sins far too personally, even when it's directed at us. In the end, our minds and our hearts focused on God, looking and trusting in Him for everything we need, protects us from feeling that we need to be the one who stands up. We interact without humility and a deep abiding recognition that we are fallen, sinful, and broken. It comes out. It comes out. We offer God's perspective about sin generally when appropriate. We do not need to point out every sin to be upholding the truth. But we need to be rejoicing in truth when it happens. In other words, I think what I'm trying to say here is it's important when we're interacting with people, friends, we're trying to love them or family, and they're making choices that are not smart. Every time they're making a bad choice, we don't need to be the bad choice police, okay? The truth is, is God's already revealing things to them, okay? But what we do need to be doing is affirming the truths that they are living on. When they bring up something good that we can get behind, we need to be on it. We need to be encouraging them in that. When they're making choices and they've asked us, what do you think about this? Fair game. We can say it. God says this, so I think this is what you should do. 
But in the end, the way we interact with people who believe different, who are openly sinning, let me say it differently, openly sinning and calling okay becomes far too charged in our hearts with emotion when we're interacting with them. We make everything we speak to them about this highest level instead of just affirming the good and looking to God, pointing to God's truth with a heart that is humble and submitted to him. Sometimes we just don't say anything. Sometimes it's better not say anything. And this is where we need to be in constant contact with the Holy Spirit and constant working with God, knowing when it is right and when it is wrong to speak. I'll give you a for instance about why it's, when it's sometimes wiser to be silent. We had a person here years ago who said, hey, uh, just a matter of fact, hey, I want to put some signs out on the front lawn. Okay. What did the signs say? They were not nice. They were technically true, but they lacked a heart. They lacked Jesus' heart. You read it, and it was not Jesus. And it turned into this huge thing about, well, it's true, right? He was trying to pin me in a corner. Well, it's true, right? Yeah, it's 100% true. Well, then why should we not uphold truth? And then he said this, it is the loving thing to tell them this truth. I said, it sounds to me like we're picking a fight. It sounds to me there's this time where it's best for us to be silent. And he walked away. He was irritated. He had already printed all the signs and everything. First mistake. A couple weeks later, he said, I think you made the right decision. He said, yeah, I think I did too. <laughs> it's better not to pick a fight sometimes. In our lives, we do this. Sometimes we want to put out signs and let everyone know in our lives what we believe and what the truth is. We end up doing is we create barriers when it would have been wiser to be silent. Finally, third point. True love believes the best of people. True love believes the best of people. Verse 8, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Even though we know that we're all sinners and we know that anyone is capable of anything given the right circumstances, we still love them in a way that assumes the best of them. When we assume people are for us in our relationships, it dramatically shades the way we interact with them. When I read this, I think about the way we interact with people who believe different than us theologically or politically. Are we assuming the best of these individuals who hold these positions? Or are we creating enemies out of them immediately because they believe that thing? And how does that shade the way we interact and talk with them and show them the love of Christ? I worry sometimes. I worry a lot. I worry a lot. How do we interact with people who believe something different and yet show them the love of Christ? That's next week. Stay tuned. Because we've got to figure this out. There is so much contention in the world today between families, in politics, between countries, between siblings, parents, and children. We need to find a way forward that we can love those who disagree, those who the Bible would probably call, would use the word enemies as a catch-all, and know how to interact and love them in the face of that. 
It starts with assuming the best. It starts with assuming the best. There have been times, going back to my marriage, when Elaine has done things that in the past would have gotten me angry or upset or would have said something that my heart said, oh, she's trying to get you. The truth is, is I know she's not. And it totally disarmed everything. But because all of us have such big egos, everyone nod, yep, we all have such big egos that when people say things to us, how dare they say that to me? I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to fill in the blank. God wants us to believe the best of the people in our lives, even in the face of their choice to sin, even in the face of their struggles. Believe the best. Start there. When we do that, it prevents the spread of sin in our relationship. If I assume someone's coming at me a certain way and I respond out of that assumption, I'm going to sin against them. I'm going to say something that I shouldn't have said. I'm going to act a way that I shouldn't have acted. And I'm going to fail to see what's really happening. We live as Christians and move and interact in the realm of life and grace and mercy. We should be experts at life and grace and mercy. Anyone who knows you, hey, do you know them? Yeah, life, grace, mercy, I know them. This is how Jesus lived. And this is where the Spirit wills us to live today with respect to others. When people prove us wrong, because they will. We're going to assume the best out of someone and they're going to act in a way that takes advantage of us, that hurts us, that sins against us. We bring our grievances to God knowing that in the end, nothing can change who we are as a child of the King. Our identity is him, not what these people say or do to us. And this takes trust. Therefore, we must find our ultimate source of love and comfort in him. This is the way God loves us. When you think of the way God loves you, do you think about it in terms of this passage? When we read this passage, do we see this is how God loves me? Listen to this. Because God is love. God exemplifies love. When you read this passage where it says what love is, let's talk about who God is. So let's look, verse 4. God is patient and kind. Remember, he doesn't lash out when provoked. He extends goodness to those around him. God does not envy or boast. I will say this. If there's anybody in the whole creation, outside of creation, if there's any person that you know who has the right to boast, it's God. He's not arrogant. God is not rude. God does not insist on his own way. He lays out his truth before us and gives us the choice as agents to walk in his way. He's not irritable or resentful. This one was like what cut me. It's what cut me. When I come to God, he's not irritated with me. When I mess up, he's not resentful toward me. God does not rejoice when I sin, when I'm doing wrong, but he rejoices when I choose truth. And God treats me assuming the best of me. He bears all things. He believes in me. He knows that there's hope for me. He endures the things that I do because he sees who he's created me to be. And finally, verse 8, he never stops loving me nor you. God loves like this because it's who he is. It's his character. He is good. 
He promised to. He made a covenant of love with us. And because of Jesus, God's love for us in Christ is never-ending. So my question to you is, are you loving like this? When you think about the people in your life, are you exemplifying 1 Corinthians 13 through 8 love, not just with your wife or husband or your boyfriend, girlfriend? With everybody. Take a moment each day to consider your heart and your motives. Ask God to open your eyes to the truth about why you are really loving, what you are really seeking to gain, and accept what he chooses to bring forth to show you because true love is selfless. It upholds the truth and it believes the best of others. Let's pray. Father, we know from your word and from the fact that as children of you, we carry the Holy Spirit in us as a guarantee of your, of your inheritance to us. Um, we know you love us with an endless love. We know that our lives have been purchased with a price. Even in the face of that, Lord, we admit that we do not love others well. We do not love them the way you love us in many ways and many times. And of this, Lord, we, we confess. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the grace to start again, to make decisions in our lives, with people in our lives, to love them the way that you love us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us this consciousness this week, this sense of paying attention to our mouths and our minds and our feelings as we seek to love others the way you love us. We thank you for your great love for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.